Take your holiday as seriously as British Airways Holidays takes your holiday. So ditch your desk, set your out-of-office on, and unwind on the white sandy beaches of the Dominican Republic. With an all-inclusive, family-friendly break at the Grand Palladium Palace Resort and Spa. Or luxurious adult-only getaway at the TRS Turquesa Hotel. Book now with a low deposit at ba.com slash palladium. T's and C's apply at all protected. I'm John Golia. And I'm Greg Fife, And we are the, the Flight, Flight Safety, Safety Detectives. Detectives. We're just two guys who have spent most of their career with the National Transportation Safety Board investigating aircraft disasters and aviation safety issues all over the world. Yep, and this podcast is where we talk about everything from accidents, airplane technology, to the big business of aviation. We live and breathe aviation. My co-host John has been in the aviation business for more than 60 years. He was the first and only airframe and power plant mechanic to get a presidential appointment to the National Transportation Safety Board. And Greg is a former air safety investigator and GOAT team captain for the NTSB. He's investigated everything that flies worldwide since he started his career 40 years ago. And on top of that, he is a living legend of aviation inductee. So between John and myself, we have over 100 years of aviation safety experience. It's time to buckle up because it's going to be wheels up. Let's get this show in the air. Welcome to another edition of Flight Safety Detectives. I'm with my colleague, John Golia. Hello to everybody. How are you today, John? Just full of stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I know that you and I have been traveling a lot. Fortunately, we're in D.C. together once again. We're at the beautiful studios that one of our sponsors, which is um, Access Experience Center. It's great because we're in downtown Arlington. We have a nice overlooking view of Washington, D.C., and of course, you and I have a history here when we both worked at the National Transportation Safety Board, so it's always nice to come back and uh, and talk about aviation in the nation's capital. And again, one of our other sponsors, PAMA, which is the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association, we always appreciate the fact that they are, are backing us as well. We try to touch on a lot of different subjects, but PAMA has been very good for both us as a, as a podcast and, of course, you, because they do a lot of sponsoring of your aviation maintenance contest and, and a variety of other things. So we appreciate both of our sponsors. Today, we have a great show, I think. It's going to be, I think, informative. It goes back to, again, Lion Air and Ethiopia, and I know that we've spoken a lot about that on previous podcasts, but Today, we have a special guest with us. She is both a friend and a friend of the show and uh, and actually comes with a lot of experience. Uh, Shanar Shaw is a professional pilot. She's been flying for over 19 years. She uh, used to fly for Jet Airways in India. She spent 13 years as a professional pilot in the airline ranks. She was an ATR FO. She was an ATR captain and a training instructor on the ATR and then transitioned to the 737, had been on the 737, the uh, NG-7-800-900 airplanes. And then right before the airline uh, <laughs> unfortunately went out of business and they, they grounded the 737 MAX, Shinar was flying that airplane for about four to five months. So we have a lot of experience uh, with her and things to talk about with regard to not only the 737 MAX, but training, especially outside the United States. One of the misnomers that uh, has been floating around in a lot of the, the public media is the fact that everybody has the expectation that pilots around the world are cut out of the same cookie cutter as those here in the United States. Unfortunately, there are so many differences between pilots around the world. And I think Shinar is going to provide us a lot of valuable experience and at least an understanding of the differences in training from here in the United States to other places in the world. So we welcome you, Shinar, to the show. We appreciate you spending the time with us. Thank you, Greg. Thank you very much for a lovely introduction. And it's it's a pleasure to be here in Washington and share an insight. Thank you to both of you. Thank you, John. And I just cannot say enough, but I love the show. So I'm happy to be here. 
Thank you. Well, we know that, you know, you have a really good contrast with regard to training outside the United States over in India, but you recently converted your certificate, came here to the United States and got an FAA uh, issued ATP with a 737 type. So you get to see both really different types of training, the way it was done here in the States with a uh, with a, not an airline training facility, but one that is a contract training facility. And then, of course, you did it through the airlines in in India. Can you just give us a sense of what it is about flying and, and you know, growing up? Because you, you started young, you started in, uh, in India. What was it like to start flying in India and then come up through the professional ranks as an airline pilot? I think that's an excellent point. From, from my perspective, I've seen, so I'll go back a little back in time, starting from general aviation, when I started flying in India as, as a cadet pilot when I was probably about in 2001, I don't remember how, I don't want to say how old I am, but in 2001, <laughs> when I started flying, and I have a little bit of exposure of general flying here in the United States, and I've never had that before, and it's just an eye-opener. In U.S., you could just rent an aeroplane, do your flying, take it wherever you want, and fly, and the instructors and the kind of training that I've been purview, it's completely different from what we have back home. Uh, the Liberty, I mean, aviation did start here from United States, but it's, it's not, it has not grown it the way it should have that it is here in the U.S. in other parts of the world. So for us, it goes right at the beginning how you're being trained right from an initio pilot, right? The basic pitch and power combinations, looking outside, actually flying VFR, not flying instruments when you're flying VFR. And the perception is completely different. So there you always have an instructor with you. At many of the flying schools, you would see that even if you are doing solo, it's they're very reluctant to let you go solo. Hmm. You probably sometimes do not even do the maneuvers in its entirety because you don't want the airplanes to be damaged, you don't want people to be killed, etc. So they're just a little more, I wouldn't say scared, but they're very protective of everything. Do you think that by not allowing you to have that level of independence as a pilot, does that compromise a pilot's growth in confidence in their own particular skills, abilities, and knowledge and growing that confidence to make independent decisions versus always having someone there to make sure that you're making the right decision? Yes, in my opinion, it does. And you're absolutely right, because it does hamper your growth as a pilot. So what what I've seen here is when you take off and when the procedures, the, the, your situational awareness, your decision-making, that varies significantly if you have the airplane by yourself and somebody not telling you all the time what to do. So back home we have, and when I say back home, I'm saying in the other parts of the world, you always have somebody telling you, do this, do this, do this, do this. So you really don't not grow as a pilot as to, okay, what am I supposed to do next? And do you think that that carries over sufficiently through your professional training all the way to being a captain? Because one of the things that we're always concerned with is that captain authority. That is the captain is the final authority. But in working in a crew environment, you can still challenge a captain as an FO. Because, you know, part of uh, CRM and, and that kind of environment, you have to be in agreement with what the captain or if you're the captain, what the first officer may be doing. And there may be some challenges there. Do you really have that experience growing up and, and learning to fly over in India or other parts of the world where you're constantly being told what to do versus, hey, what do you think of this? Let's make a joint decision and execute it. Yes, that's a great point. That's what you see in the rest of the world, which does not give you this liberty of doing what you really want to do. So it's always, yes, sir, yes, sir, three bags full, sir, in many parts of the world. And the, the general concept of CRM also seems to be different in different parts of the world. So CRM doesn't mean that whatever your captain say, you're just going to nod your head and agree and do whatever you want. And it, it's more of like it's this discussion between the two flight crew who have the same ability of making decisions. And if in case I see something which is something that I disagree or if just to the general discussion as to what do you think, can we do this? Rather than a person telling to the B and it's generally the captain telling the first officer, OK, do this. And then as a captain on the 737, but, you know, just as a 
professional pilot over there. When you interacted with maintenance folks, what was that interaction like? We know with John's experience flying or um, uh, working in the airline business, you know, he was interacting with pilots all the time who said, hey, we got a problem with the airplane. You know, John's leading a maintenance crew to go fix that airplane. And there's a good discussion that takes place. Were there some barriers? Yeah, every once in a while. But what is it like then to communicate? So if you have a problem with the airplane, you get maintenance on board. Are they receptive to listen? listening to you or you just tell them and they expect you not to tell them anything else. They're going to go do what they're going to do. What's that feeling like in the interaction between pilots and maintenance? No, from my experience and what I have, I've always had a great rapport with the engineers, with the crew, all of people around us, because I do believe that it's, it's a joint effort. It's not like a one man show saying, okay, I'm going to do everything. You don't know anything. So I've always had a great rapport with the engineers and they always teach you a thing or two which you really do not know more about the airplane. So if you tell them something, they're receptive. They do appreciate what you're saying. They take your input, you take theirs, and then you make a collective decision whether this airplane is going or not. Well, yes, the final authority does lie with the PIC to whether to accept the airplane or not. But it's it's not like, okay, I think it's not going to go because in my opinion, it's not safe. Then yes, you don't take it. But it's always good to have a great discussion between the two because they know what's wrong with the airplane. And they're the best people to tell you whether it's, and they generally do. So in my experience, yes, it's, it's been great. But I'm not sure if that happens in all the parts of the world because OTP pressure is real. And what is that? The on-time performance pressure is real. And with the, I mean, the airlines today, they want the airplanes to be in the sky for 12 hours, 13 hours in a rotation. They do cut corners, not every time, not all airlines in the world, but yes, there are times when if there are small issues that can be addressed later, then they would prefer it to just deal in and get the airplane out in the sky as much as they can. It raises a question mm -hmm. uh, from me on the write-ups. When you come in with, with a problem, do you write it up before you talk to maintenance or do you wait until after you talk to maintenance to write it up? Trick question. <laughs> But yes, if there is something that affects the performance or safety of the aircraft, yes, you for sure write it down. But you do have a conversation with the engineer saying, hey, this is what happened on my flight. This is what we did. And this is the light that has come on. And I'm going to write it down. Not for the sake that I want to put the airplane down and it's, I mean, you do because I want you to do something on it. It's their expert opinion. They look at the plane. They say, yes, it's all good to go. And they clear it off. So I don't see it a harm in writing it down. And in most of the cases, yes, there is something genuine that is wrong with the airplane and they fix it. So the reason why I asked that question is as I was looking through the events around the Lion Air accident, mm -hmm. at the end of day two, uh, the crew flew the airplane all day long with the MCAS system switched off, totally off. And they came in and there was no write-up and there is no indication that, that uh, has reached the public yet of whether or not they even talked to maintenance about that event, that whole day's event. So I was just curious as what the culture was on writing up items. That would be, in my mind, that's a critical item, but maybe the flight crew didn't realize that it was a critical item and they didn't write it up and they just verbally told whoever met the airplane. So that'll come out over time, but that was the, the basis of why I asked that question. Shinar, with regard to some of the way we train pilots, you know, back in the day, of course, pilots go to ground school, they go sit in a classroom, they listen to somebody drone on for eight hours about a hydraulic system or an engine or whatever. And there was always question about how much comprehension that pilot was getting out of sitting in a classroom basically being bored to tears, tuning out, doing other things, being distracted and not getting all the good stuff. Of course, we've transitioned over the years with computer-based training or CBT-type training. And there was a question with regard to the additional MCAS training after Lion Air about how it was going to be trained to pilots. Do they need to do it in the simulator? And then all of a sudden, there was a lot of uh, concern that the MCAS training was going to be basically iPad-based. The pilot's going to be able to look at it on an iPad, read about it, understand it, interact with it. And that was a concern. Oh, my gosh, we got to get them in the simulator. They got to fly it. Is that really the case? I mean, when we talk about CBT training, it is very interactive. It is engaging. It's intended to be engaging with with the student, if you will. And while it does have a lot of benefits, of course, it does have its drawbacks. 
you can, you know, because that's that type of training requires a pilot to have a lot of self-discipline when they're not in the classroom, they're doing it in their hotel room or at home or whatever. And so, of course, they still are subjected to uh, these distractions. In your view of training as a whole, what do you see is the good parts of training and how pilots really get a lot of systems knowledge? Because this operation of the MCAS and, and all the consternation that's going on with the MAX is all about a system. It's not the airplane. And people keep saying that this airplane is going to be recertified. It's not the airplane that's going to be recertified. It is a system of the airplane. And as a MAX pilot, what's your impressions of this additional training that's intended for this MCAS? And is it really that big a deal from a perspective of a 737 MAX pilot? The 737, the MAX training, basically, it's not a different endorsement. MAX is just about differences course. So there is the airplane is exactly the same how an NG flies. Actually, it's even it's more quieter. It's more fuel efficient. And it's, it's a beauty to fly the MAX, according to me. And I just simply love that airplane. And it's just the differences training which we were given sitting in a classroom and a CBT. So we had CBT. Instructor came up, explained us the differences of what what's different from an NG on the or on so the max. So when you when you initially mm-hmm. got typed on the seven three, it yeah. was in a next uh, new generation or NG version yes. of of the seven thirty seven. That's correct. And there's really not a big difference between the NG and the max. There, is, of course, it does have the MCAS, the maneuvering characteristics. Uh, system on it, which is the subject of of these two accidents Mm -hmm. that we've been talking about in previous podcasts. But the big thing here is, is it really that big a deal? I mean, as far as training, do you, if you have that trim wheel moving, do you try to analyze, well, is that because it's a runaway trim because it's a motor problem or is it MCAS triggering it? You just want to know, hey, I got to stop that trim because Charlie over there (laughs) isn't moving the trim and I'm not moving the trim and the autopilot's not on, so something needs to be done. Yeah, so it's basically just a difference is training. The system is exactly the same how it was in the NG. So the, the, the actions that you would do in case of a runaway stabilizer, and that's one of the memory item checklists, that you do is exactly the same that you do on the NG and is exactly the same that you do on the max. I think the... Concern here is the identification of the malfunction and reaction to the malfunction rather than the malfunction itself. Yes, we have come to a point where we are are actually blaming a system that the system did not function the way it was designed to. But in my opinion, it functioned exactly the way it was designed to function. Absolutely. So the root cause, it's not really the MCAS system in its own. Yes, the manufacturer gave you the differences training, but they did not mandate people saying that, no, this is only thing that you can do and you cannot do over and above. Your organizations worldwide have the liberty to add to their training as much as they want, as much as they feel, as if they risk assess their change and they feel that, no, this requires additional training for my crew, they're free to do it. Nobody's stopping them from giving additional training. But coming back to the point whether the system malfunction or is it any different from flying an NG and flying a MAX, in my opinion, no. They're exactly the same aeroplanes. The, sec- the MAX is even more prettier to fly than the NG. It's just the identification and the reaction that you, whether you identify whether the malfunction, what is the malfunction, what's your reaction to the malfunction, and then what do you do? Tomorrow, if the electrical power goes off in an aeroplane, you're going to be all blinded and have 30 minutes to land, you, you cannot say, oh, the electrical power went off and I don't know what to do. And given the fact that you are a trained 737 MAX pilot, um, I know that your airline unfortunately has gone out of business, but when you went through that training program, when you stepped from the training program into the cockpit of that airplane, did you feel that you had the adequate or above adequate level of knowledge to operate that airplane under any condition and circumstance and do it safely. Yes, because we were trained enough. We were had we had the CBT course for it. We had a ground school for it. The DGCA regulations are a little more tighter than what I've seen in the rest of the world. So they make sure that whatever changes do happen, it's properly risk analyzed and you're adequately trained. And if we didn't have to have an additional simulator session or anything, it was a differences ground school. But the differences were laid out very categorically, and we knew exactly what the system is doing different than what an NG does. And in case if something goes wrong, this is what you're supposed to do. And one of the other issues, of course, that's come up 
is at least with the Ethiopian pilot, and I know that it'll probably come up somewhat with uh, with Lion Air, and that is the fact that the first officer on the Ethiopian flight had, you know, between 200 and 250 hours of total flight time, very little flight time in a, a turbojet or a turbofan airplane, i.e. the 737 MAX, and had transitioned out of a, seven, uh, out of a Cessna 172. That would never happen here in the United States. We have this 1,500-hour rule uh, for commercial airline pilots. Uh, again, that was implemented after an accident we had here in Buffalo involving a uh, Dash 8 aircraft. The question is, the rest of the world doesn't have that 1,500-hour mandate as we have here in the United States. We see it in other parts. I've, I've been over in China. I know that they're flying with pilots that have sufficiently less, you know, 200, 300, 400, 500 hours. What's your experience with a low-time pilot? And then given the fact that you were an instructor on the ATR, did you see that being an issue when you were trying to train first officers coming into that ATR environment? What I would say in this context is having the number of hours exactly do not really matter. You can be like a 5,000-hour pilot and still not figure out how to fly a plane. You can do a procedure and let the autopilot do and nothing happens to you because you have did the procedures and everything is in place. What I believe is happening is the lack of training and especially the initial training that has been imparted that needs to be strengthened and which is so you have a, here in the United States there are veterans instructors who've, who've flown their these airplanes right from I don't know when, it's been a long time since people have been training here and they know the concept of training they believe what they teach they let you do things hands-on and then you have the liberty to take an airplane and have your own experience before you can actually get a license which doesn't happen in the other parts of the world so the level of training right from ab initio till and then it's just a cascading effect if you don't know the the relationship between pitch and power and your horizon and your attitudes and what you're supposed to do that's it that's your basic which is kind of flawed and then that continues because airlines are not going to invest over and above if they find you proficient in what they want you to do they're going to put you in the seat and they would want you to go from A to B. And one of the questions, of course, with both of these flight crews that were involved in the accidents is the fact that they lacked airmanship. That is, I mean, you had a flyable airplane. Yes, did you have a lot of systems that, you know, were warning them or providing alerts and, and they had to react to them? Yes, but they still had a flyable aircraft. Yes, the trim had run, but if they had followed the proper procedures and, and hit the stab trim cutouts, the airplane is still flyable. They had a horizon because the weather wasn't bad. They had the ability because in the books, there is a pitch and power setting change so that you can find a particular pitch setting and power setting and fly a particular airspeed. So the airplane was still flyable. And it's, we call it flying raw data. That is, you're going back to basics. Yes. Do they develop that kind of airmanship in the environment that you were talking about, given the fact that they never get to fly themselves a whole lot, where they have to depend on themselves. They are the only resource, not the instructor or whatever. And that's a great point, because automation is taking over the industry to the fullest. The airlines want, they, they did really don't want pilots to touch the controls and fly the plane these days, because they want automations as much as possible and probably most of the manuals say that use automation yes it is required if you are into a congested airspace where you have lots of radio happening wee hours when you really you are tired maybe at times you are and then yes you rely on automation but on a clear day people have just forgotten how to fly planes they just get up minimum autopilot engagement height engage autopilot rest of the flight i don't know how many times people will actually disconnect the autopilot or just put the flight directors off in the autopilot mode and just see the pitch and power setting at different phases of flight. And if you are not purview to that, if you don't know how much you need, if something goes off, you would really not know how to react to the situation. And just from your experience, man, and again, uh, you know, this isn't necessarily a representative characteristic of all airlines, but when you did your type rating ride or the equivalent thereof over in India, how much hand flying did you have to demonstrate during the check ride versus how to program the automation, how to use the automation appropriately, both under normal conditions and then abnormal conditions. So it was a difference. So when I got trained on the ATR, it was completely different because it was turboprop and it was back in the time when the trainers would expect you to know each and every light 
that came into the cockpit. So each and every but each and every switch, what did it do? What did it meant? What was the technical behind it? You were expected to know, and they would ask you. There weren't these lesson plans which are stepwise saying, okay, this you are expected to know this, and if you know this, then you're fine. You were expected to know a whole lot more, and then they shared their experiences in the flight deck, and it was like a learning environment. As I transitioned to the jets, things changed. There is a there's a set curriculum which is available. If you knew that those many items, you were good to go. There was hardly anybody who asked me questions about the technical of what happens if this light goes off or what happens if this light comes in. So yes, the training footprint has reduced over time from what it used to be to what it is now. Airlines are, they are just squeezing their footprints to get lesser time for people in training so that they're lesser on ground, more in the airplane, and they can have people ready to fly. John and I have been talking about, you know, with Lion Air, we started with that in a podcast and and really that sequence of events started days before the actual accident when they had to replace the AOA vein. They replaced it with some off-the-shelf AOA vein from a third party. They didn't go back to Boeing, which John and I still are shaking our head as to why they didn't do it, because the airplane was technically under warranty. They should have just called Boeing and said, hey, send us a new one. They put this AOA vein on, but as John found out, and as he was going through all the maintenance stuff, it's obvious that they they didn't calibrate it properly. So now they already had a built-in flaw in the AOA vein on the left side versus the right side. It created an issue. Of course, it then started the sequence of events on the day before the accident that the crew handled with the help of a jump seat rider, this mysterious jump seat rider who figured out that it was, hey, the trim is moving uncommanded do what you got to do. And they were able to safely put the airplane on the ground. However, again, that same problem apparently didn't get reported, didn't get fixed or get fixed properly. Accident crew takes the airplane, they take off, they experience this issue. As a pilot, we are all trained in a variety of different airplanes. They have different memory items. In the 737NG or the 737 MAX, there are two critical uh, memory items, autopilot off, auto throttles off. Can you explain, you know, what it is about these memory items and what's the expectation of the pilot once they recognize, hey, I got an issue, what do they revert to? Do they revert to pulling out the checklist and trying to run through checklist items or what's their priority with all of this? The priority should be is that you need to hand, A is to fly the plane. Come what may, if you have to get rid of the automation, get rid of it. And that's the, that's the key item in every memory item. The first thing they tell you is disconnect autopilot, disconnect auto throttle, because they want you out of automation so you can fly that plane. If you're in the automation, airplane is going to do what's commanded, and then you have no control over the aircraft. Memory items, the reason they are called memory items is because they are time critical. If they are performed at the time they are supposed to be performed, things can be contained. And Boeing FCTM clearly says that if you have delay in Executing these memory items, especially in case of in case of malfunctions like airspeed unreliable at takeoff, there are chances that you will lose the control of the airplane. So if you don't a you don't identify on time, and then if you don't do the memory items, then yes, there is a lag, which then the airplane is going to do what it thinks is right. And then under that kind of scenario, real quick. Under that scenario where you do have an issue where right at liftoff, you get the stick shaker because you've got a problem, you've got unreliable airspeed. What's the interaction between the captain and the first officer as far as handling this issue? So it's normally the pilot monitoring is the one who's going to call out the malfunction. And if he's not sure what the malfunction is, what training we've got is you just say the system which is malfunctioning. And once you identify what is wrong, you just you identify whether there are memory items or there are no memory items. Once you say there are, just perform those memory items, disconnect everything, do what is supposed to be done, fly the plane. Once you're at an, a sufficient altitude, now you've assessed the situation, now you know what is the problem, do your normal checklist. And then you go to the non-normal, pull up the checklist, and then do the rest. Okay. Because the reason memory items are designed is once you perform the memory items, the airplane will be in a safe, safe zone. You would be that airplane is safe to fly now. And now you figure out what the checklist says. What are the additional items that you're going to have, not have, land ASAP, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, et because that's what I've I've been preaching yeah. in our previous podcast, and I do it when I give safety presentations. And that is the automation is a great tool, but it is not the pilot. The human sitting in those seats, you got to be a pilot. Yep. Even when everything is going bad, 
you got to be a pilot. Mm -hmm. And in this particular instance, of course, a lot of the coverage that has happened since um, Lion Air and then, of course, through Ethiopia is that they want to put all of this, you know, trust in the airplane to keep a bad pilot out of trouble. And of course, the NTSB recently wrote some recommendations. They want manufacturers to dumb the airplane down to a level that, you know what, they're going to compensate for the worst pilot being in the airplane. I've got a problem with that. John and I talked about it for an hour in one of our previous podcasts, and I, a lot of the people we talked with in the industry have real problems with it. I think it's an insult, but that's a whole different story. But when you're looking at it from the standpoint of a professional crew member and you're flying the airplane, the fact that these folks in both of these sequences, one of the issues that's come up is they got overwhelmed with all of the bells and the whistles, the warnings and, and the alerts going off. And because of this uh, overwhelming number of sounds and, and flags and, and that kind of stuff, this is what got them confused. In your experience, and of course, you were an instructor, but you're also receiving training. How are pilots supposed to handle a professional pilot under these circumstances flying a uh, turbofan aircraft, a jet aircraft? How are you trained to handle these multiple alerts? And is the training sufficient to help a pilot sort out, okay, I got to come up with this because that's my priority. I could care less what's going on with all these other alerts because they're just secondary to this or secondary to this. How are you trained to handle and prioritize these alerts and what you're going to do to remedy it? Yeah, so startle effect is real. I mean, if you consider human factors when it comes to incident investigations or accident, and you're an expert. Yes, startle effect is real. But the point here is that if you are sufficiently trained enough in those safety critical items, then yes, if, if something of that sort happens, you know how to react. And the first thing that as a pilot that you do is fly the plane. Come what may, whatever happens, you just need to fly, aviate first, navigate, and then communicate. If you do that in that order, chances are nine out of 10 times that you would be able to do exactly what you're expected to do. What's happening these days is that, in, especially in the training profiles that we've seen, everything is laid out for you. So for example, if you're going to, the, the instructor tells you exactly what's going to be your next exercise in the simulator. So it, if you are doing a reject and after that, it's going to be a go around. After that, it's going to be X, Y, Z, whatever the exercise is. So you know the list. So now you're prepared that, okay, I've got this. Now I'm going to get this. Now I'm going to get this. But that doesn't happen in real world. In real world, it's going to be, it will happen. And then you will have to react. And this stems right from the beginning of what's your, again, I keep saying pitch and power, but that's exactly how a pilot is supposed to behave. Once you know at takeoff, I need 15 degrees pitch, full thrust, I'm going to level off. It's going to be 10 degrees, descend, minus one, whatever. If you know the, the approximate figures, even if everything goes off, for a time being, you know exactly what your airplane needs. But if, you know, if you're just by the book and doing procedures and you're like a parrot doing stuff in an airplane, then yes, startle is going to, it will take you by surprise. And then again, like if you don't do time critical items in time, the airplane will do it for you. Here in the United States, like you were talking about before, yeah, I can walk out, I can go get checked out and then rent an airplane and go fly myself around. And I am my only resource. So if something goes bad, I've got to be the cool, calm and collected one to assimilate what's going on and then execute the appropriate procedures to remedy that particular situation. Given what you talked about in training, where you're never really your own advocate and your own resource, do you think that the startle effect, even in a crew environment, has a greater impact because that pilot never really learned how to accept and, and assimilate and then execute on their own? So all of a sudden you get all of these issues and you go into brain lock and next thing you know, you're trying to react, but you don't know what to react to first. Exactly. Because maintenance these days and aeroplanes these days are extremely sophisticated. When an engineer gives you an aircraft, it's, it's got no MELs, everything is just perfect. It's becoming a norm. So there's generally nothing wrong with these airplanes these days. They're well maintained, they're brand new, and they're well engineered. So the only time you can actually demonstrate these non-normals is in the simulator. And now if you tell me exactly what's going to happen next, and which is a set of items that have not changed since beginning of time, it's not moved enough towards the evidence-based 
training that we just keep doing things over and over again, which actually never happened in, in a normal life. And then when something happens, which is out of the box, you don't know what to do. So yes, there is a priority that tells you if there's a warning, it's immediate attention. If there is caution, yes, it can wait for, for, for some time, but it has to be addressed. And if it is anything else, then you take your sweet time after your normal procedures are over. So the hierarchy of how you're supposed to attend to a non-normal is already defined in the books. But the question is, are we preparing our pilots enough or are we addressing startle effect enough in the simulators where we have the time and the chance to do it? I don't think industry is still moving that far. I mean, if you're just laying out everything at every stage of training, and if you know that much, you're you're proficient, and then that's what's required. You brought up a great word, prepare. Are we preparing our pilots for these kinds of events? As an instructor, when you had new pilots coming through, you were instructing, you probably saw the top of the list, you know, the, the, the best of the best, and then you saw the worst of the worst and something in between. Were they actually prepared and they just failed to execute timely or properly, or were they just totally unprepared? And was that a product of training or was that a product of themselves? That's a great point. Yes. Like you mentioned, I've seen both the spectrum where there are some people who are extremely prepared and they know exactly what to do when. So there are some people who just think, yeah, we're going to take it how it goes. We'll see. And there's always a captain to tell you if you're doing something wrong, he just tell you. Or the attitude makes a lot of difference. And that's one of the key elements of CRM as well. So yes, what you generally see is the people who are actually prepared and have done their homework. They know what to expect. They're better situationally more aware of what's happening around them. And their decision-making abilities are much greater than a person who is totally unaware of what he's supposed to do. Because now he has, he doesn't have to worry about what needs to be done because he's not prepared. So he needs to know what needs to be done. And then if something comes in addition to your normal workflow, then now you're totally overwhelmed because you don't know the normal. There's no way you're going to know the non-normal. Yes. So there is a marked difference between being prepared and unprepared. And one of the concerns that I've had with CRM or crew resource management is that while both pilots do go through the course of CRM, some are, you know, eight hours, some are 16 hours. It all depends on the airline and, and what they're covering as far as human factors and, and communicating and, and interaction and that kind of stuff. Does culture play into this? Here in the United States, we've broken down that wall so that the FO feels empowered that if the captain's doing something wrong, they're not afraid to either speak up or take control of the airplane. Having worked accidents all over the world, especially over in Asia, while they do go through CRM training there, I've done a number of accidents where you had a junior first officer, you know, 1,500 hours. He's not going to stop or tell the captain who's been flying, you know, he's 56 years old. He's been flying for 20,000 hours that he's doing it wrong. And they dutifully watch the captain fly the airplane into the ground. Do you think that culture societal type culture has an influence of whether or not CRM, which is a critical element in the cockpit under abnormal conditions, high stress, high anxiety. Do you think that that has an influence, good, bad, or indifferent in the way pilots perform? Uh, yes, it certainly does. And coming from, from a culture where positions and hierarchy and your seniority plays a significant role, Yes, I have seen people who are completely submissive only because there are times that you're flying either with your post holders or you're flying with a DE or a senior TRI, an examiner or an instructor, a person who's trained you right from the beginning and you've made you a first officer essentially. And now if someday you're flying with that, that captain and if you see him doing something wrong, yes, there have been instances where people say, but he's a trainer, how can I say that? When I used to be in safety, also we used to get these kind of explanations during investigations that, yeah, but he was a trainer. He's, a, he's doing whatever he's supposed to do. And how can I say something? So, yes, that does exist. And it exists in, because of the culture and from where we come from. Yes, it, it does. And that's why the, the focus had changed. And at our company, we, we had greater emphasis on empowering the first officers to speak up if they see something it's not not normal or something even if it's not normal even if they think have a slightest doubt just be polite enough to bring it to the notice of your captain that i think this is the way it should be done obviously the decision eventually lies with him 
But we did empower the first officers to speak up as much as they can. And you have a unique perspective because you are not only a pilot, a line pilot, an instructor, but you have a safety background. You see the world kind of like John and I see it because we live outside the box. And as you talked about earlier, as long as you're operating inside that box, whether you fly it, fix it or manage it, as long as you're inside the box, that's basically safe haven. We live in this world where we're outside the box waiting for somebody to stray. Mm -hmm. When they start to move to the edge or get outside that box, that's when John and I and you really go to work because we're trying to figure out how they got outside the box and why they didn't get back into the box, back into safe haven. And so from your perspective with, and again, I know it's early and we don't have final reports, but you know, we've, we've all talked about all of the stuff that's being reported. Some of it's facts, some of it's fiction, and who knows what the rest of it is. But with regard to these two particular flight crews and these two accidents, I mean, as we just talked, as long as you got a flyable airplane, as long as you got power, you still have wings on that airplane, and you're still, still able to control it. Again, the pitch problem with the, quote, runaway trim or the MCAS trimming the airplane a lot of that, and again, I've dissected this, a lot of that was induced by those crews because they failed to follow all of the procedures that would have let them maintain control of the airplane. Do you see that even if these folks, and we know that at least Ethiopia supposedly was trained to the, quote, new procedures or the reiteration of the runaway trim procedure after Lion Air, do you think that regardless of the fix that's going to come out and we put the 737 MAX in, back in the air, is that really going to prevent accidents in a 737 MAX? I'm putting you on the spot. It all, again, depends on how how much change you're going to bring to your culture, how much change is going to happen in the training footprints, how exactly is that culture shift going to happen. It's interesting to see that an accident go by and then the industry still stays reactive as to, okay, nothing's happened with me, so nothing's going to happen. Or it happened to X, but it's not going to happen to us. There's less and to be learned for the entire industry from these accidents that it can happen to anyone. And how you address the root cause of it is of concern rather than pointing fingers and blame saying, okay, system didn't work, pilots didn't work, et cetera, et cetera. In my opinion, it's a system that failed in collection in both the accidents. They knew about it. They did not report it. So right from management of change to things go wrong to people not reporting it, some reporting it, some be able to manage it, some cannot manage it. So there is a disconnect between in the, in the whole system. And as long as we don't fix the system and we try and fix an individual, and, I'm, and you would know that better, it never works. So if you don't fix the system, the fixed system has the capability of collapsing and it will collapse at some point in time. You know, as I'm listening to you talk and I'm relating just what you're saying to events on the ground. We have been damaging airplanes to the tune of billions of dollars every year that's would a be every year damaging airplanes and we change nothing every airline says that's not going to happen to me but we just keep on doing we train the spray i call it spray and pray we throw out our procedures and pray everybody uses them and then we ding a wing and you know somebody gets fired or something happens and we go back to business as usual and we're wasting billions and billions of dollars every year on the ground before the airplane even gets in the air and I agree with you because it's just that it happened. We we saw it happen and okay, that's it. Either the systemic changes, we don't want to identify the systemic changes. There is, in my opinion, a complete lack of oversight in every area. May that be ground, may that be fly drops, may that be training. We're doing stuff, but we're not watching whether it's done the right way or not. So if you don't fix the system, it's a vicious cycle. And if it's not one element that can be blamed because of which, yes, the pilots are the last line of defense. But there are multiple barriers that failed before that came to that last barrier. And now with OTP pressure or like on-time performance pressure, or we don't have enough people to fly our planes, any number of reasons, we've actually made the last barrier weaker than ever. So we don't invest in their training. The initial trainings are not up to the standards or not up to what it used to be in the past. So now your last line of defense is weak, and ones before that have already failed. So it will yep. not have the outcome that we all expected to have, and then we can 
shoot stars in all directions, but it's not going to help. And John and I have talked in a previous podcast. We're concerned because now there's a lot of articles. There was a, a front page story in the Denver Post about the, quote, pilot shortage. John and I have talked about the fact that it doesn't only reside with pilots, but it resides with maintenance folks as well. At least here in the United States, it's alluded to that we're going to be short pilots all around the world. Given what we talked about with training and inexperience and whether or not we actually have pilots that are prepared, is this, quote, shortage going to force more green pilots, younger pilots, a, a different type of mentality pilot into the cockpits? And are we really going to be concerned? Because we're not going to change the technology of the airplane. It's only going forward. Is the human going to be able to keep up through existing training programs with that technology? Now, we know that there's some alphabet groups out there that would love to see, you know, big airplanes be flown by one pilot or, you know, zero pilots, which personally, I'm not getting on those airplanes ever. The fact is, is that because when you look at the miracle on the Hudson, you had two pilots in the front end of that airplane who, if that was an autonomous airplane, the decision would have been basically by the computer to try and go back to a piece of pavement, not go into the water. So I want that human making the decision, good, bad, or indifferent. I think they're going to make a better decision than the computer. With all that being said, is this pilot shortage going to have a greater effect? We're trying to anticipate whether or not it's going to compromise safety here in the States, but is it going to compromise safety? Or has there always been a pilot shortage outside the United States? We just haven't been cognizant of it. At least they say that there is a pilot shortage, but and we're not able to attract more talent into the industry. The reason being that it's A, not lucrative, at least how it used to be back in the day. The lifestyle has changed. The work patterns have changed. There's a lot of pressure, a lot of stress associated. And there's somebody watching you all the time, either maybe the regulator or it's your own airline. Everything is just regularized and people are watching you all the time. So are there enough people willing to come into in the industry? Maybe the answer is no. And whatever is left of what we have, we just need to invest more in them, in their training, in grooming them, in making them better pilots, rather than just somebody just occupying a seat for a person to go from A to B and B to A. So if, if that's the idea that we want two people sitting there, don't use your brains, just do what the, what the airplane wants you to do, engage the autopilot and just sit and have a coffee, then yes, we're asking for trouble. And I've always been an advocate. And again, John and I talk about a lot of these things. And, and one of the things that I'm always concerned with is that with the advent of automation and how much dependence we're putting on it, not necessarily because it's in the airplane, but because the training program says, just like you talked about, let the automation fly because the automation can fly better than you. And so we've become these button pushers. We've become these people that can program waypoints and, and all sorts of stuff in there. You push execute and you let it rip. And I know the FAA is concerned about degraded manual pilot skills. This is a wave because we talked about it 20 years ago when automation first came into existence. Then it kind of waned and then it went back up because we we're having some accidents due to automation or misinterpretation and confusion. So the concern went back up and then it died off again. And guess what? It's coming back. Why don't we just level the playing field and say, you're going to fly the airplane all the time because if you can fly it manually, you can fly it on automation. I mean, is that a logical, at least perception, that we should be doing more manual flying in the training programs? Because if you can fly the airplane manually, you can definitely fly point A to point B after you've, you know, programmed the FMS and push execute. Is that possible? In my opinion, yes, it should be. I'm not saying that you need to fly the plane all the time because it's humanly not possible given the human factors that are involved with it especially the increase in traffic, the kind of sectors that you're doing, the kind of changes your body goes through because of the amount of flying that you're doing. It's not like olden times where you just did two sectors, three hours a day, came back home and had a sweet 36-hour rest before you could go back again. Crews now are flying on the minimum rest. They really don't want to fly the planes because I've seen people who turn around and say, but I don't want to. If an airplane can land on its own after a nine-hour flight, I would rather have airplane do the job because I'm fatigued. So people are flying back to back with minimum amount of rests, changing time zones across the globe, going east sometimes, immediately left sometimes. So there are a lot of elements that are in effect as far as a pilot is concerned. So expecting them to fly all the time would definitely not be the solution. But yes, as and when you get 
chance, especially if you're on a smaller airplane, if you're just starting off, you're changing fleets, you're new to the aircraft, just get the feel of the airplane. See what how airplane behaves at different regimes of different flight regimes in different phases of flight, just to get an understanding of this is what she wants and this is what you're supposed to supposed to give. If you just punch in autopilot to autopilot, you would never know the expectations of what this baby's gonna do. So yes, there has to be more manual flying. I agree, but there has to be. Yes, we are carrying people. And of course, their safety is paramount. Anytime you think, and that decision has to be yours. Anytime you think that I don't want to fly it, just push it in. But if you can, by all means, just just feel the airplane and fly and be the be a pilot. That's great, John. We're running out of time. I'm going to let you ask one more question if you have any, because I'm taking the last word in this one. <laughs> I have one question that uh, you just talked about the automation and the effect on pilots. But what I'm seeing around the world in, in maintenance facilities, and especially in MR, MROs, which are not owned by the airline, is that the uh, amount of training the maintenance people are receiving on automated systems has actually gone down, not up, over the last 10 years. And now we're relying upon the automation in the cockpit, but yet the people that are responsible for maintaining that level of automation don't have the basic understanding or the full understanding of the systems that they're working on. And that's been raising uh, my hair a little, what's left of my hair. It's been, it's been raising us up uh, a little bit because it's sooner or later we're going to have a mechanic that's going to make a mistake on with the automation and the pilots and passengers are going to pay the price. Mm-hmm. Last question for you. Yes. 737 MAX comes back into service. Are you going to fly it? Even now. Somebody has the keys, I could just go fly now. That's it's a beautiful, beautiful machine, and it's it's a great aeroplane, very well engineered. It's unfortunate what has happened, and we definitely do not want it to happen again to anybody. But yeah, baby, bring it on. I love that plane. That's great to hear. Well, Shinar, we appreciate the fact that you spent an hour with us talking. I think it's one of our best conversations that we've had, and John and I try to have conversations all the time. So uh, we appreciate it. We look forward to having you back on the show once the reports come out to get your perspective as to the findings and and that kind of thing. And for those of you listening, we always appreciate your feedback. You can contact John or myself at Flight Safety Detectives with an S at gmail.com. We'd love to get your feedback on this particular show. If you have any ideas or topics you want us to cover, we'll research them. We'll have guests. We'll talk about it and see if we can answer questions. But we encourage you to partake in uh, into the podcast. We want, uh, we want you to be interactive with us. So with that, on behalf of Shinar, my colleague John Golia, I'm Greg Fife. Fly safe. To listen to more episodes of the show, go to FlightSafetyDetectives.com or the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association at PAMA.org and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Catch us next time when John Golia and Greg Fife talk about all things aviation. Thanks for listening.